I love a cup of coffee in the morning. It might be addiction to caffeine, but I think it's just as likely to be about the ritual. I relish the whole thing of picking one of my two favorite mugs, turning on the tea kettle, getting a spoon and the cream ready, or of getting coffee from a drive-thru, or even more extravagantly, going to a cafe and sitting with a cup. All of these things testify to the way my morning is going. If I don't get my cup of coffee, it means things about my day. It means that I was too busy, or that I got up late, or that we were out of cream. <laughs> so morning coffee is one of my sacred rituals. But a priest that is into rituals, well, maybe that isn't a surprise. So much of our rituals here at church make me feel closer to God. I love this space and the glorious music, the poetic prayers and the years upon years of tradition, the saints who came before and those here now who we pray beside. I love the formality of chanting and the accessibility of the Eucharistic prayer at the Church of the Commons. I like the variety of postures standing, kneeling, crossing ourselves. Sharing God's peace reminds me that together we make communion, even and maybe especially when it feels hard. Have you been to an evensong service yet? The whole service is lovely, an intentional and contemplative way to end the day. One of my favorite parts is when the choir sings the Magnificat and the officiant puts incense on the coals, filling the chancel with church-smelling smoke. I will, at times, make fun of how we've always done things, because sometimes we get too precious with stuff like that. And each of these traditions and practices should hold up to question, but I really like a lot about how we've always done things. <clears throat> It is in these holy spaces where I draw deeply upon the prayer of ages, where I feel comfortable and vulnerable enough to give the joys and aches of my heart a chance to breathe. I enjoy the shift I feel when I enter houses of worship, the anchored quietness, the peace of knowing that I am praying with generations of others who have blessed these hallowed halls. I like the way that church can invoke the spirit, clearing my head and making room for the divine imagination to work in me. It feeds me. One of my mentoring priests taught me about the Shema while I was in seminary. It comes from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He explained that it is Jewish custom to pray this prayer upon entering and exiting the home, which is more or less true. 
When I was first ordained, I served in California. It was a hard call and not a good match in the midst of my transition from eager layperson to ordained leader. Consequently, California for me is a complicated place in my memory where beauty and wonder is mixed with anger and grief. But a place that I loved to go was a religious goods store in Oakland. When I think religious goods store, I kind of automatically think of kitschy, poorly made items with pop culture theology, because you know, I'm not judgy. <laughs> but this store is different. It's a place where they have put real intention into collecting items that are high quality and truly of particular religious cultures. There was one case that always fascinated me. It was the case of mezuzahs. A mezuzah is a scroll with several verses of Deuteronomy, including the Shema, affixed to the doorpost, often in a decorative box. At that store, there are metal ones and glass ones, simple and fancy. I have talked to a few folks this week who have them and how they use them, and it seems like practices vary. I love the thought of having a specific reminder to pray through the transition as I cross the liminal space between outside and inside, that when we have one foot in the house and one in the world, we pause to offer a prayer. It is the Shema that Jesus adds to when the authorities come to test him. They ask which commandment is greatest, and he replies, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus has satisfied the law but he goes on, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus sees that the authorities haven't understood the entirety of what it is to love God. The original commandment was complete. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and might requires us to love the God in one another. But Jesus sees that the people aren't doing it and explicitly commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But he didn't just add any commandment to the Shema. This one, Ched Myers writes, is a conflation with Leviticus 19.18. And in Leviticus, the definition of neighbor is in terms of non-exploitation. The verse Jesus cites is the culmination to a litany of commands prohibiting the oppression and exploitation of Israel's weak and poor, he writes. Mark's Jesus always emphasizes justice. To call someone a neighbor is to call them an equal, someone who you are not and would not exploit. So Jesus promises that the last will be first. He tells the man to give away his riches to the poor, and he heals the blind man and the paralytic and frees the possessed. Jesus seeks human flourishing into the fullness of God and God's love, and that means casting off oppression and exploitation and truly loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus came embodied love to teach us and then show us how to be followers of God.
So he tells us these two commandments, the most important, and then he, dem he demonstrates how to live it out. Even as I find ritual comforting, an easy way to slip into the sacred, sometimes the Holy Spirit sneaks up on me and finds me where I am, in the basic and the profane, in places where I don't imagine it would be. When I lived in Chicago, I rode the L a lot. I rode the north-south red line, rhythmic, loud, consistent, it was dirty and filled with strangers from many walks of life. I saw professionals going to and from work. I saw people traveling to the airport. I saw drug deals and a kid lose $100 on a shell game scam. One day I'd forgotten to take off my chaplain badge. A man jumped into the seat across from me and started a conversation I wasn't much interested in having. Only when he saw my badge, he started telling me about his grandfather who had been a pastor in Louisiana. I was tired and spent and simply wanted to get home. And instead, I talked with a stranger who rode two stops past his own to finish our conversation about God and the church. It was an unimaginable reminder that even the most profane spaces can be sacred. And maybe that's why the mezuzah has captured my imagination so. The idea of pray praying regularly in a spot that I pass through dozens of times in a week. Not because one space is more holy than another, but because every place is sacred. Each time we pass through liminal spaces where one place meets another, may we be ritually reminded that we are God's chosen, and choose God. Because when we feel God's perfect love, we won't be able to contain it, and the rhythms of justice will course through our blood. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself.